Amen. What a great confidence and what a great hope that we have in Christ. Before we begin, just take a moment to, to think. Clark's mentioned it already, but just to think about the goodness of the Lord and that today in the state in which we live and many surrounding states, many states in our nation, that the horrific evil of abortion is illegal. The Lord uses means to accomplish good, and we praise the Lord for the means that he used to right this wrong and to correct the evil that has gone on in our nation for so many years. And so we praise the Lord for that and as we do that, we must remember that the job is not complete. The task is not done. These babies and these women now need care and they need help and they need aid. And now's the time for the church to step up. And the thing that we must step up in, I believe, the very most is the proclamation of the truth and the hope of the gospel. So may we be faithful, as we looked at last week, may we be faithful to go forth and to go out and to defend and proclaim the hope that we have in Christ. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, verses 18 through 22, and this is really the completion of, of Peter's thought. This is where he drives home the application that he gave us last week. He gives us instruction and encouragement as to what is our hope and what it is that we go out and defend and proclaim. Um, the title of this message today is Hoping in the Reigning Savior. Hoping in the Reigning Savior. Now, it's been said that this may be the most difficult passage in all of Scripture to properly interpret, and I think I tend to agree with that. But as we look at this, what we need to do when you come to a difficult passage or even to an easy passage is we must find the main point. You find the primary point of the author of Scripture to his original audience and then fill in the details, those difficult details will fill in under and around the main point. You do that with difficult passages, and you do it with the easier and more straightforward passages. So that's kind of the goal today, is that we'll, we'll see the outline, we'll see the sketch, and then we'll fill in the details as we work through the passage. So again, First Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22, hoping in the reigning Savior. I'll ask that you stand with me now as we read our passage today, as we read God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. First Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, 
who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. I invite you to bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a glorious day it is, for it's a day that you have made and we rejoice and are glad in it. Lord, what a blessing it is week in and week out to gather together with your people to lift high your great and glorious name. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us through the pages of Scripture. You have given us all that is needed pertaining to life and godliness in your word. And so as we come in a day and an age of of great need, we come knowing that you supply our every need through the power of your Holy Spirit, working through the ordinary means of grace that you have ordained and ordered and supplied for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to give proper attention to the truth and the authority and the teaching and preaching and application of your word. Lord, we pray and we ask that your spirit would move powerfully among us that all the words spoken today would accord with the truth of Scripture and that you would take your word and plant it in our hearts, that you would cause your word to bear fruit, that you would sanctify us in and by the truth. Lord, would you show us Christ? Would you help us to have a a fresh glimpse at the work that he did, the, the work that he accomplished at the cross so that he might bring us to you. Lord, help us to understand the weightiness of the of the glorious cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Help us to see Christ and to be transformed. Help us to be conformed to his image. Help us to put away sin, to cut off the arm of the flesh, to resist the devil so that he may flee from us. Help us to stand firm in the truth. Lord, may we take hold of the glorious gospel before us. May we live by it. May we give ourselves to proclaim it. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready and eager to receive 
and respond to your word. Give us hearts that are ready to repent. Pray that you would break up and plow up the hard and stony ground of our hearts and plant within us the seed of your word and cause it to grow and bear fruit. We ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we read, Christ died for our sins. The just dying for the unjust. He died so that he would bring us to God, so that he could make peace, so that he could reconcile us by the blood of his cross. We see that he proclaims a victory over sin. We see that there is this judgment coming for sinners as we remember back to the great flood of Noah's day. We see that we are united to Christ. We are baptized into him because of the work that he did. And we see that this Christ, this one who is our Savior, who died for our sins, he reigns. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. Friends, we hope in a reigning Savior. So the primary call to us in this passage is that we must be united to Christ. It's the idea of baptism into Christ. We must be united to Christ. We must be washed and regenerated through his blood and made alive in him. We come to him by faith and we have new life. We are a new creation. We are raised to newness of life so that we walk in newness of life. We walk as a new creation. We must flee the judgment of Christ. When you think about the flood, that must be what you think about, the judgment of the Lord on a sinful people. But it's not only judgment, it's his patience and his mercy because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was counted as a righteous man by God in eternity past. He was elect, he was called out, he was set apart by God for a specific task to be made alive through Christ, looking forward to Christ in the future. So there's judgment and there's wrath. This is the thrust. This is the idea of this passage. It flows out of what we saw again last week. That we must sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verses 18 and following are the outworking of 1 Peter 3.15. It is the how, the who, and the why that we have hope. You hope in a reigning Savior. So we see here the kind of to, to give you an outline, to kind of sketch the big picture so then we can work through the details. We see the substitutionary death of Christ. We see the patient judgment of Christ. We see the saving baptism of Christ and the eternal reign of Christ. So that's kind of your outline. And then all these difficult details, and, and they are difficult. It's hard to completely understand exactly what Peter is getting at here, but all these details are really subservient to that outline. They must stay within the bounds of the whole of Scripture and the main point, the main purpose of this text. So with that, let's dive in. Let's look at the substitutionary death of Christ in verse 18. 
It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Peter begins with this amazing and this humbling reminder of the suffering of Christ, that Christ died for sins once for all. There's but one sacrifice for sin, and it was the sacrifice of Christ 2,000 years ago on that cross. Christ died for your sin. And it's amazing, and it's humbling to think about the fact that he died about the sins that you committed before you came to him, those sins had to be paid for, but even those sins that you commit after being in Christ, they were laid upon him at the cross. He died and he paid for sins that you will and you have committed since being made alive. He died for sins once and for all. So we must consider the great value of this sacrifice. And as Peter keeps coming back to this, to to highlight the value of Christ, his importance, his, the, the value that the Father placed upon the Son. We must see Christ as the one who is of infinite worth. If there's really one thing we take away from the study of the book of 1 Peter, it is the infinite worth of Christ. So you say, how do we see that in this idea that he died for sins once and for all? Well, God is holy. He is just and he is righteous and no sin can ever enter into the presence of God. But God determined to save a people and to save a people, the price for that sin had to be paid. For us to be made and counted righteous, the, the condemnation had to be borne out. The wrath had to be poured out on someone because God hates sin and sin has no place in the presence of a holy god so how is god both just and the justifier of those who have faith in christ it's because christ bore that wrath in your place Christ, Jesus, the man, the Son of God in human flesh and in human form, was crushed under the weight of your sin. Christ is a glorious Savior, and he was not only crushed under the weight of your sin, but of my sin and the sin of every elect saint of God from the beginning of creation until Jesus Christ himself returns. So you say, how do we see the worth of Christ in the fact that he died for sins once and for all? Because it was one man dying for many. Just as through Adam, sin entered the whole world, so through Christ, life and hope was born for all people. Around this idea, R.C. Sproul talked about a double imputation. The fact that your sin is imputed it is credited, it is written on to Christ's account. And at that same time, the righteousness of Jesus is given to you. It is written into your account. It is credited to you, though you are unrighteous, you are ungodly. There is nothing good or meritorious in you, but you are counted righteous through Christ. 
So Christ died for your sins once and for all. Once and for all. There's a purpose in this death for sin, the, the just dying for the unjust. And then Peter says that he did this so that he might bring us to God. Christ died so that for the express purpose that he might make peace with you, a sinful man, with a holy, sinless, glorious God. So the whole purpose of the cross was to make peace. The whole purpose of the cross was to make peace through his blood. So Paul wrote in Colossians 1.20 that he has made peace through the blood of his cross. We must understand Jesus always accomplishes what he sets out to do. He set out to make peace. And he has. He has. Through that blood poured out, that blood washing over you, covering your sin-stained life, you are now at peace with the Father. And that is because the just died for the unjust. Hebrews 2.10 would put it this way. It says, For it was fitting for him, speaking of the Father, for whom all things are and through whom all things are made, in bringing many sons to glory, he would perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Christ was perfected. His work was completed through his suffering. That ties in to 1 Peter 3, doesn't it? Because we're talking about suffering for the faith. We're talking about suffering hardship because we proclaim Christ and we look to that Savior and remember that his work was completed through that very thing, through suffering. So Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God because he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. That's the fullness of salvation. That he's put to death in the flesh, but made alive in and by the Spirit. Think about 1 Corinthians 15. We studied that not too long ago. And Paul spends a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the resurrection. He said, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching would be in vain. And your faith is also in vain. He says, if we hope in Christ for this life only, then we of all men are most to be pitied. If Christ was not raised, you who place faith in him should be pitied because your life, your hope, your faith is for the present only. This is the importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Because if he was not raised, then we have no hope. But scripture doesn't preach Christ that way. You did not learn Christ that way. He was resurrected. He is alive, and he will always, always live. He will always live to make intercession on your behalf before the Father for all time, pleading his blood on your account so that you can be free from the penalty and the power of sin. And one day when all things are brought to that consummation, you will be freed from sin's presence. Christ lives. He was made alive in the Spirit so that you could have life. So when we think about our hope, 
when we think about defending and proclaiming our hope, it begins right here. The substitutionary death of Christ. That he died for our sins once for all, the, the holy and the righteous and the just for the unholy, for the unrighteous, and for the unjust, the, the one who is in sin. That is where your hope begins. That is where our message begins. When we proclaim Christ, we begin with that point that he died for sins. But not only did he die, but he was raised. He was made alive by the power of the Spirit. So Peter continues on. We also see the patient judgment of the Lord in verses 19 and 20. It says that he was made alive in the Spirit in which, or maybe better translated, in whom... Also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now again, these verses is where Peter begins to get a little bit confusing, where it gets a little hard to follow and understand exactly what point is he making? So again, think about the broader context. Think about the broader picture that he's painting about how we proclaim and defend our hope and why we proclaim and defend our hope. So that's where we think about the patient judgment of the Lord. We proclaim our hope in Christ because judgment comes. Judgment is coming soon for those who are not in Christ. The Lord will not restrain his wrath forever. There comes a point when all men die, and when they die, they will face the judgment. They're either in Christ and welcomed into heaven, or they die in their sin, and they're sent to hell, condemned forever and ever. Now, before we kind of work through this, I want to give you a few things I think this passage, these two verses, really, they can't mean. I'll give you a few references. We won't read them, and you really have to consider the whole of Scripture to kind of make sense, but there's a few references that are kind of good launching points as, as you think, what, what is Peter not saying? We're going to begin with the negative. Firstly, this cannot mean that Jesus preached to souls in some state of purgatory. The Catholics teach this in-between state um, when a soul dies where they'll go and be in a purgatory for a, a period of time. And clearly, this is not a biblical idea. You can consult Luke 23, verse 43, that scene of Jesus on the cross. And likewise, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8 and 9 for further reading on that. It also doesn't mean that souls that died apart from Christ were given some type of last chance to repent. When we die, we face judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 and Hebrews 9.27. You, you die and then comes the judgment. So Peter's not saying that there was some last chance for these souls held in some in-between state to repent. And then thirdly, there are some who would teach from this that after Jesus died, he went to hell and proclaimed his victory over sin and I don't think that's the case. I don't think Scripture backs that up again. You can think about Luke 23, 43, when he told that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. 
you can look at more, more broadly into Scripture, I think, to understand that it's not what this is talking about. So then what is Peter describing here? What, what is the importance? Why is this? This is God's written, revealed, holy, inspired, and errant word that is all profitable for our teaching and our correction and our reproof and our training in righteousness. So why is this included? What is Peter getting at here? Think as we remember, the flood is a display of the judgment and the mercy of God. That should, that should put wind in our sails when we think about defending our hope. That should be what thrusts us into those hard and difficult and even sometimes awkward conversations about the hope of Christ. Because we remember through pictures like this of the flood that judgment is coming. We know that Christ is proclaimed in and by and through the Spirit. He was made alive in the Spirit in whom he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Christ is proclaimed in the Spirit to save lost souls from the pending and coming judgment. So don't get caught up. I don't think we need to be caught up in well, what does it mean, these spirits in prison? Matthew Henry, for example, would say that this referred to souls in hell. John Calvin has this description of saints who are in a, in a watchtower. They're not, not, in a, not in a prison in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. And So I'd encourage you, don't get caught up in that, but understand the bigger picture of what Peter is saying here and understand that when you consider the flood, there is judgment and there is mercy. Think about the picture from Genesis 6 and 7. The, the, the world was evil. It was overcome and overwhelmed by sin and debauchery. Genesis 6, 3, the Lord says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. The Lord had become grieved by the absolute evil of sin in this world that he had created. He even went as far as to say that he was sorry to have ever created man, and he determined to blot off the face of the earth every man and every animal. And what he have done next, I guess we don't know, but, but he looks down, he sees Noah, the one that he had counted righteous. It says in Genesis 6, 8, 9, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and he walked with God. So when you think about this idea of those who are disobedient and the patience of the Lord kept waiting in the days of Noah and then in the ark there were these eight people, Noah and his kind of immediate family that were saved, they were spared from the wrath and the judgment of the Lord. Think about that in the context of our hope in Christ and our defending and our proclaiming and the need to proclaim and defend the hope of Christ. For we who are in Christ are like those who went into the ark. We are spared from the judgment. We are saved from the judgment. We are made safe from the wrath of God because that wrath falls outside of Jesus Christ who is our ark. He is our, our fortress, our shelter, our defender. You even think, when you think about the Lord's mercy in the flood, you think about that 50 to 75 years when Noah was building the ark, and that is God's mercy. 
for that whole period that Noah was building the ark, all that time Noah was warning the people. The Lord promised that a flood is coming. You must repent and find safety in the ark. You must repent and turn to Christ. That is the Lord's mercy. Seventy-five years of the Lord holding back his wrath and his judgment and giving men an opportunity to repent. It's nothing but God's mercy and compassion. And what you see there then is the evilness and the wickedness of men's heart because they refuse to repent. So let's get down to this. What do we take away then from this reminder of God's mercy and his judgment in the flood in the time of Noah? Well, I think what that reminds us is that the Lord's patience for sin will cease. The Lord will always be patient, but that time when he restrains his wrath will come to an end, and his wrath will be poured out. It will be poured out as the floodwaters that came. His wrath is like a flood that will sweep away any and every soul that is not in Christ. So if you're not in Christ today, hear this to be your warning that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you turn to Christ. You repent of your sin and come to him in faith. But this doesn't only apply to those who are in Christ. Think about, think about those who are in Christ but are, are struggling with sin. Dear saints struggling with sin, the Lord's patience will not endure forever. The Lord will not allow you to desecrate his name by living in sin while claiming the name of Christ. Repent of your sin. Cut off the arm of the flesh. Stop dealing trivially with things that are holy and come to Christ. Return to Christ, put away that which is evil and put on and come to that which is good and pleasing and honorable to the Lord. Today is the day, dear saints, that we must go out and proclaim the good news of Christ. Today is the day that we must be made more active in our preaching the good news of Christ. What, what a better time than now to go out and preach Christ. What a better time than now to, to go out and make Christ known when the world is in such upheaval, when wicked people just put their wickedness on full display. What better time than now to go and preach Christ? And I say that with, with conviction because that, that is a we. We must go out and preach Christ. We must be faithful. We're entrusted with the gospel. We're entrusted not so that we go sit on the gospel and hide it, but so that we let it shine as a light and proclaim the glories of Christ. Peter continues on. We, we see the substitutionary death. We see the patient judgment. And then kind of flowing out of that, we see the saving baptism of Christ in verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. 
not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when you think about this idea of judgment and you think about the call and the need for repentance, this flows so naturally. This is really the genuine outworking of salvation. The, the idea that baptism into Christ saves you, whereby you appeal to God for a good and clean conscience. I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. You, you have to, you see that Peter says that it's being immersed into Christ that saves you. It's not that you are washing dirt off your flesh. It's not that you are put literally into the waters of baptism as some would teach. It is that you are being covered over with Christ. You think one, one ar argument that I know I've heard, and I think it's from Church of Christ person, the, the so-called Church of Christ, he says, corresponding to this, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. I've, I've heard it said that then he must be referring to some type of ritualistic cleansing and that it is indeed the waters of baptism that save. That's a, a common argument. But obviously that's not what Peter is speaking about. It's not what he's writing of. He's saying that you are appealing to God for a clear conscience. Think about the word baptisma or baptizo in the Greek. Some, some of us learned um, in the study of the Puritans that we've done on Wednesday night, Steve Lawson in that talked a little bit about the writing of the King James Bible. Back in the 1600s, King James did not agree with immersion baptism. And so when translating that Bible, the, those writers made up an English word to correspond to, to baptisma because the king didn't practice biblical baptism. What baptisma and baptizo and all those related words speak to is immersion, being submerged into water. It doesn't speak of sprinkling. It doesn't speak of anything but immersion. And so what it is that saves you is that you are immersed into Christ. You are submerged into him, his person, and his work. And that work then flows out of you. You are in Christ. You are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. That's why... The Baptistic type of baptism that, that we would practice in this church and other like-minded churches practice, that's why they are times of worship. And they glorify God because they help show this picture that you die with Christ when you're put into the water and you're raised with him to walk in newness of life. That is what saves you being united to Christ. So let's think about how we apply that because there's a lot that could flow out of being united to Christ. But think about what Peter says here. He says that you appeal to God for a good conscience. You, you beg, you ask, you plead with God for a good and a clear and a clean conscience. And before we go any further, praise the Lord that your appeal is only given merit in Christ. Right, we, we plead for a good conscience because we plead that Christ's righteousness would be credited to our account. 
But think about the practical outworking of that. If you were in a court of law and you were going to make an appeal to the judge to count you as innocent for something, would you ask to be counted innocent while you were actively participating in the very thing that you were being charged with? Absolutely not. That would be absolutely crazy. And the same applies to our appeal to God. When we appeal to God for a clean and good conscience, that means that we must be walking in righteousness. You will never be perfect. You will never be sinless on this side of heaven. But how do you reasonably appeal to God to be pure and clean and counted righteous when you actively engage in sin? It doesn't make sense. Because that's not how God ordained salvation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. When you appeal to God for good and clean conscience, you do that as you are actively striving to put off sin. You do that while you're actively striving to walk in newness of life, to display the glory of Christ, to love him and to keep his commands. That's what happens when baptism into Christ saves you. Those commands are not a burden. You desire to walk in Christ. Finally, we come to verse 22, and I want to consider just briefly the eternal reign of Christ. The eternal reign of Christ. This is the great summation of going all the way back to verse 13. The great reason for our hope. Look at verse 22. It says, He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is the one of whom you appeal yourself. This is the one to whom you appeal as you ask the Lord for a good conscience. The resurrected and reigning Son of God. Jesus humbled himself. He took on human form, being made in the likeness of men. He sacrificed himself. He gave his life, his very life, to the point of death as a sacrifice to pay the ransom for your sin so that you could be redeemed. But remember that Christ has also glorified himself. Christ raised up from the grave. He ascended back into glory, and he took his rightful seat at the right hand of God Most High. The importance of this cannot be overstated when you consider the hope of salvation. Cannot be overstated. We have Christ as our advocate. We have Christ as our great high priest. We have Christ pleading for us at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who died for you also pleads and intercedes for you. He keeps you. He feeds you. He shepherds you. He cares for you. And he, by the giving of his spirit, empowers you to walk in that new life and empowers you to walk until your faith is made sight. 
Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. I believe some of the most glorious verses in all of Scripture. It says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul is a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the hope. This is the steadfast anchor that our Savior entered into the holy of holies. He was not bound like the high priest of the Old Testament were because he is the very Son of God. He lives, he intercedes, and he reigns. Peter says it this way, that the angels and authorities and the powers have been subjected to Christ. All things are put into subjection under his feet. Jesus reigns. There's nothing, there's no demon, no power, no principality, not even Satan himself that is not submitted to Christ. So how might anything or anyone snatch you out of the hand of Christ? And oh, by the way, as Jesus said, his Father who has given you to him is greater than all. This is why we have hope, because our Savior reigns. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, truly, indeed, glory and hallelujah, it was finished. The work was complete. Eternity, eternal life was secured because you are bought by the price of the blood of Christ, which is the most glorious and valuable thing in all the universe. MacArthur refers to this description of Christ's work as being the greatest triumph ever of the suffering a righteous person and think we would all say yeah absolutely but just just think about that for a moment the greatest triumph ever of the suffering of a righteous person as we work to conclude remember Peter is writing to encourage and to exhort these saints to suffer for their faith and he does so by pointing to the greatest example, the most victorious example of suffering for the faith, which is Jesus Christ, suffering for being righteous. He suffered in the flesh, but he reigns in the heavens. He suffered in the flesh, but he reigns forevermore in the heavens. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. It's a good spot to end. If we died with him... We will live with him. If we endure, 
And we endure by the Spirit's power at work in us by God's grace. If we endure, we will reign. This description of Christ being seated at the right hand after the angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, in a way that's a foreshadowing of what we will somehow gloriously experience with Christ. If we died, we will live. If we endure, we will reign. Dear friend, die to yourself today. Die to sin. Die to flesh. Cut off that which causes you to sin. Throw away that which causes you to stumble. Die to self. Live with Christ. And then fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes upon the prize. Run your race with endurance. Run with endurance. And if you endure, you will reign with Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we understand that that though our time of direct study of your word is coming to its conclusion, that the work that you do in us through the word is, is never complete. It's never done until you call us home. So I ask, Lord, not that we would close this section of our lives, but that you would write your word upon our hearts and our minds. And as we go from here in a little while, that your word through your spirit would continue to work, that you would confront sin. I pray that you would bring us to repentance, that you would give us a reverent fear of your holy judgment. Lord, how thankful we are that we make our appeal to you for a good conscience through the blood and the righteousness of Christ. May we ever and always consider that glorious Savior. May we live our lives in a way that brings him honor and glory, for he and he alone is worthy. Lord, we pray that you be glorified through the remainder of of our service, that all we do would bring honor and glory to you, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.